Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. This is Ricky Schlott, and I'm here without Robbie and instead with Evan Mandry, who is a guest today with an excellent book that everyone should order. He is a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and a lawyer by training, but also the author of eight books, including Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us, which anyone who's listened to the podcast for a while knows that that's kind of a, a passion issue for me as a proud dropout. Um, so Evan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ricky. I'm very happy to be here. So first, I think a good place to start is give us the elevator pitch for the book. What what can readers expect to read? That elite colleges um, dramatically exacerbate social inequality, that they're not just merely reflecting it, that they're they're making it worse. And that they operate in connection with suburbs um, to really drive de facto segregation in the United States. So standard kind of upper middle class, rich white life course is you live in the city until you have kids and then you move to the suburbs. And what you're doing is you're chasing access to the narratives that elite colleges value. And that really drives a huge wedge between rich and poor in the United States. Can we rewind to kind of the beginning for you? And can you tell us a little bit about your own upbringing in education and maybe your pathway into academia yourself? I grew up in Brooklyn. Both of my parents were teachers. Actually, both of my parents went to CUNY. They um, went to Brooklyn College. We lived in Brooklyn and moved to Long Island to a middle-class white suburb called East Meadow when I was about 13. And um, I went to Harvard. In retrospect, I think I was uh, kind of the target of a scholarship program that was aimed at middle-class people. It was actually kind of originally geared for farmers. So I think of myself as the token middle-class person, though I was a good student. And then I was a lawyer. I I stayed at Harvard for law school. I was a litigator. I worked in politics. And then I kind of came to John Jay. I went to describe myself as a crusader. I definitely knew that I liked CUNY because my parents had gone here. And I'm very deeply affected by having taught the students that I've taught for now, I can't believe this, but it's 25 years. And this statistic is staggering. Two-thirds of CUNY students come from families making less than $30,000 a year. I joke that in my career, I've taught exactly one rich white person. She was very smart. She's a professor of forensic uh, science (laughs) now. But that's it. Everybody else I've taught has has been poor or poorish and overwhelmingly students of color. And can you tell us a little bit about how, um, like, observing that contrast between your students now and your own educational background informed your worldview and and what the most stark differences are? Yeah, I mean, I think what I really didn't like the most, um, I'm not super engaged with Harvard. I tell the story in the book that I had dinner with this friend, and he was still actively involved. He didn't give a lot of money, but he was an alumni interviewer, and I was very turned off by it. And And we started discussing it. And I think I'm repulsed, I think fair to say, by the narratives that people tell about the students that I teach. You know, there's many criticisms of American higher education that are fair, but it's certainly not true that the students I teach are lazy uh, or unmeritorious and would not have done well, you know, had they been given the opportunity to have gone to one of these colleges. So, I just hated legacy preference and just the idea that these colleges were stacking the deck further in, you know, for rich white people. But meanwhile, 
kind of claiming that they were good actors. I I just thought that was just kind of a a bullying and insulting type of bullying. And that that's kind of the emotional core of the book. Yeah. And one um one part of your book that we quote in our book actually that Greg flagged to me, which really got me like fired up. These statistics are incredible. Less than 20% of Harvard students came from families earning under $65,000 per year. More came from families in the top 1% than the bottom 50%. And the average family income of a Harvard student in the class of 2013 was $505,000 per year. As many students came from families in the top one-tenth of 1% as from the bottom 20, which is just Hard to believe. So I assume that all this data you've been able to glean from the Supreme Court discovery process, or is is this all been public for longer? It's data from Raj Chetty and John Friedman. Um, so it's been out there for six years or so. They actually just supplemented that data. And I think the supplement really makes the story even worse. So the story that like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford like to tell us that they're reproducing underlying conditions in society but the new tranche of Chetty and Friedman data shows that even controlling for everything else, so if you take somebody with the same high school GPA and same SAT score, the rich student is still gets an additional advantage beyond that. And um, I think that that's it's just appalling. I just wanted to take a second to say that I uh, may be one of the few people in your audience that has read yours and Greg's new book. Fantastic. Um, actually, I just finished my own piece, which is about Greg and your book, which will be in Politico, well, probably by the time this podcast airs. And, you know, you quote two things from the book. So you quote that data. Do you also quote something which I think is really was meaningful to me? And I was glad that you and Greg attached to it, which is it's framed around a quote from Leon Botstein, who's a very outspoken, iconoclastic president of Bard College. And, um, you know, he says part of the reason that the liberal liberals in the academy are so kind of outspoken about these performative issues is because the structural issues are so bad, right? You know, instead of, you know, whatever one thinks about DEI trainings, boy, I'd sure rather triple the number of Pell Grant recipients that are going to Harvard than, you know, have an additional DEI training. And Bodstein says it's the extraordinary guilt that these people feel about that that actually leads them to engage in this overabundance of virtue signaling. Yeah, that was a super powerful quote. And actually, just the other day, I was going through old files on my computer and I realized that having gone to a boarding school, which I know is like the most hoity-toity ridiculous context to be a Lawrenceville student now, being a man of the people, but in that background, I I saw that already in those little bubbles. And I was clearing out old files from my freshman year, I think, of college. And we had read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I had responded. I, I'd been writing like a, a written response to that book, which I feel like was assigned to us by a well-meaning teacher who wanted to expose us to a broader worldview of these. I mean, we're all these kids at this ridiculously expensive prep school, um, majority white, majority from upper middle class or upper class backgrounds. And it was almost like putting us through like some of the stuff that I was writing about being white is being a state of ignorance and stuff that I know that I didn't really believe. And I was also a little young to even be engaging with, but like it did feel in that context 
where, I mean, I was just parroting back what I was hearing in the classroom. But in that context of, of having such a disproportionate like student body of kids who all came from similar backgrounds, it almost felt like we were caricaturing the viewpoints of, of the other for the sake of social justice, to your point. And like looking back, it almost felt super tone deaf to, to ha- do this exercise of, of all these, these little privileged kids trying to like, I don't know. It, it just felt like tokenism, but that's kind of a, an aside. I think, I think you're right. My experience jives with that. I mean, I'm going to maybe a slightly different version of what you're going to say, but I think in the same vein, I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time with students and I've mentored a ton of really smart socioeconomically disadvantaged students, mostly students of color who've gone on to law school. For the most part, they don't care about any of these things. They want to learn and acquire the skills that will allow them to go out. Many of them go on to be real kind of social justice leaders, but they want to read and write well. They want to have critical reasoning skills. They want to, you know, be able to use data to have some mathematical capacity. The things that kind of whatever woke liberals kind of talk about, I I don't hear them saying that. I've never had a student in my class say, oh, I really, really, my main concern is the diversification of the canon. I can't imagine any competent professor who wouldn't teach John Stuart Mill or Kant and not note that these were all affluent white men and that, you know, a lot of what they were proposing, you know, just kind of rationalized injustices in those societies. But, you know, what it comes down to is I'm trying to teach them to read something critically and to be able to make the best possible version of their argument. You know, it's the it's the rich white people that really <laughs> are the ones that are kind of driving the train on saying, hey, we need these measures that feel to me mostly performative. Yeah, it's just, it's looking back. I mean, I take no exception to that book being assigned. I mean, it's a it's an interesting, different viewpoint. I certainly don't agree with him on everything, but it, it just, it felt very much like the incentive structure as a teacher in such a monocultural school is that you need to, if you if you're lacking different viewpoints, if you're lacking different social experiences and socioeconomic experiences in a classroom, then you almost have to caricature it and deliver it in an artificial way. And I, looking back on that context, it was just, it was disappointing the lack of like meaningful diversity that was going on on that campus. But anyways, I'll digress into my boarding school world. It's okay. I mean, I'm a civil libertarian too. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of your book and, and I'm a, a big fan of Fires Project and of Greg personally. And, you know, I've told Greg that The Coddling of the American Mind was my favorite nonfiction book of the past five years. And I love the canceling and I kind of see it in its totality as a presentation of a worldview that I really agree with. Of course, teaching between the world and me, I've read it, is totally legitimate. It's a great book, but you can't expect a student to respond to it in any particular way, nor should you want to. People are going to have their own experiences. If you tell them how to respond, you've undermined the educational experience. So some students will read that and it'll be an epiphany for them. For some students, they'll just sit there in the back of the mind, and that's fine too. But when we kind of dictate what an acceptable response is, oof, we're doing more harm than good, for sure. And so back to your book, because I don't want to derail it entirely with my one weird anecdote. So tell me, is there a specific 
moment or or realization that inspired you to write this or is it just decades being in academia piling up like when when did you sit down and and put pen to paper and and what was the impetus for that um i had i mean i have a very specific moment where i became determined to do it which was this dinner that i had with friend a friend and he was really defending harvard on the basis of the financial aid initiative so harvard and basically all of the colleges with endowments over $5 billion a year, do some version of this. And so they'll say, oh, you know, if you make under a certain threshold, at the time I had the dinner was $65,000 per year, you could go for free. But I was like, well, that begs the question, how many kids come from families making less than $65,000 a year? And it was the kind of the difference between their public narrative and the actual facts that I found repulsive. But, you know, I definitely had reservations in college. I, I mean, I, my values have never changed. Um, maybe my outspokenness or and my facility with data, maybe that's changed over time. So I always had misgivings about Harvard as an institution. I never understood why people were getting in, to let, it, let in to play squash and lacrosse, and they were all white and all rich. And so that seemed off to me. And then I was like, oh, wow, all of these mechanisms are kind of working together to privilege rich white people. And, you know, I don't want to throw a ton of data at people, but like at Williams College, like one out of three people is a recruited athlete. <laughs> these aren't like, you know, small buckets in the admissions game. So by the time you end up counting out all the ALDC preferences, you're talking almost half of these classes. Yeah, I mean, it's staggering. I, I The Supreme Court case, that just overturned race-based affirmative action at Harvard and I, I and UNC as well. I found the data that came out in the discovery process to be hugely illuminating, and I didn't really engage with it until fairly recently. Um, but there's just, I mean, I think that if for nothing else, that case did the public a service in revealing just how how much favoritism and how much inequity occurs in the elite admissions process, especially as like Harvard's now at 3.4% acceptance rate this year. But I'd be curious to hear when, when you first started digging into this data at what period of time, because it's been an, I'm like Harvard's admissions has been notoriously an opaque process for forever. And this kind of blew the cover off of it. So when you saw this data and what came out of this case, did it, confirm your your suspicions was it worse than you thought i'd be i'd love to hear your reaction yeah i mean the timing was like propitious for me i mean i i probably started writing the book about eight did i really think about it eight years ago and the chetty friedman data came out and the discovery process you know it takes a long time for a case to get to the supreme court so discovery started i'm not going to get this exactly right but it's more than five years ago so some of that was available to me i mean look what I think is really important for people to understand is SFFA happened because of Harvard's stubbornness, because of Harvard's And behavior. just to clarify, that Students for Fair Admissions, the, the case for any right, listener Ed that Bloom's doesn't know. Or Ed Bloom's organization. And the Constitution has a very, pretty simple to understand. The goal of diversity is recognized by the Supreme Court as legitimate. If you have a race-neutral way to achieve that goal, then you have to use it. That's what narrow tailoring means. Well, Harvard had such a means. They could have eliminated or curtailed preferences for athletes, legacies, donor, children of faculty and staff. That would have opened up a lot of more spots. But Harvard summarily concluded 
that legacy preference was in, in its essential, it was in its institutional interest, even though there's no data whatsoever to suggest that. Yeah, it was something like almost three quarters of white students at Harvard fit into a group of either being legacy on the dean's interest list, which is kind of code for related to a donor, an athlete legacy donor, and then there was one other category, I think, as well. It's children of faculty and staff. Oh, children and faculty and staff. Yeah, which is just incredible to me. Like having at the in the Lawrenceville context, you know, we're right next to Princeton. And that like when when my parents sent me there, and I I don't come from an academic family at all. My dad didn't go to college. And, you know, they were like, Oh, it's a feeder school. This is like all the kids here go to Princeton. Within like six months of freshman year, I probably could have told you exactly which 15 kids in my graduating class were going to go to Princeton. And it was all the ones whose parents had gone to Princeton. And it's it's just, it's amazing this to like watch it firsthand with a bunch of kids who were talented from different backgrounds in my school or who just didn't come from families with that that legacy admissions bump. And it was like, I mean, you could have picked it out from a mile away three years ahead of time. So I'm curious what what your reaction was to the Supreme Court ruling, if you think that this is going to lead us to a, a better future? Or, or? I have no optimism about anything. I mean, the Supreme Court's literal ruling is that, um, you know, Harvard and UNC's admissions plan was unconstitutional. None of these colleges, so I, have, I wrote a long article about this. It's an open question whether compensatory affirmative action would still be constitutional. So, for example, it would look very different than what it has looked to to this point. But say that, you know, Georgetown or Harvard, as part of its slavery reconciliation project, said, we're going to set aside a certain number of seats for people who can show that they are themselves the descendants of generational African-Americans or were victimized by redlining or some discriminatory practice that Harvard engaged in. I, I don't think the Supreme Court would have upheld that. I just don't think the case would have reached the Supreme Court. Now, none of them have gone through the you know, the kind of laid the groundwork for making that evidentiary showing because it would be institutionally humiliating, but it is the history. So that's what race-based affirmative action really was intended to be in the United States. It was supposed to be compensation who were for people who were specifically wronged by legal practices. And instead, you know, the colleges turned it into something about a, about diversity, but that's BS. And it, it's BS in the most fundamental sense. It co-ops kind of the benefits of affirmative action for rich people. Oh, we need some students of color here because it will help us learn about the world. And, you know, that's not what it's intended to be. And I'm not really sure that it's true. I don't know that there's no evidence that people learn math better in um, diverse environments. And, you know, Harvard's position was indefensible. So it's not surprising that it lost. I don't know whether anything else would have won. I don't know that what there were really five votes there that would have supported anything. But the district court decision was wrong. The district court judge should have said to Harvard, no, you have a race-neutral way to achieve these goals. You go back and think about how you free up some spots for fair competition. It's shocking to me to think how many, even, even the kids who do fulfill a diversity quota are so often from like are just like the top of the the crust of their respective demographic as well. So you're not actually, true. and I saw that at Lawrenceville too. Like you, you have kids in the top of the top of the 1% who are going to fulfill some sort of quota when 
And and I think this is part of what, like we talk extensively in the book about a lack of viewpoint diversity on campuses. And that's pretty inevitable when you boil people's demographics and, and their immutable characteristics down and you take away all the, the cultural context or the socioeconomic context or the schooling context that kids come from. And you end up in a world where people may look different, but they've all pretty much grown up the exact same way, which I think is really pushing towards a frightening culture of conformity on these campuses. I mean, what's what's your outlook on that? And and how does your college contrast with, with a place like, like Harvard, where you have such different student bodies? Well, <laughs> there's lots of things we could say. I mean, I'm going to have to distinguish the students from the faculty. I don't get a super ton of kind of performative students. Most of my students are very appreciative. And like, I think I'm a very challenging professor. I'm also a very engaged person. I'll, if I meet somebody who really works hard, I'll, I'll kind of do anything in my power to help them succeed. They're grateful for that. I think they want to be challenged. Faculty is quite different. At John Jay, we a few years ago implemented a uh, seven principles for culturally responsive and anti-racist curriculum. And the document, you know, references John Jay as a white supremacist institution in, in multiple places. John Jay was a slaveholder. Nobody wanted to change the name, but, you know, I was like, well, if we're a white supremacist institution, what language do we have left to talk about the KKK? You know, I'm totally with you and Greg on this. I just think there's very little, I mean, tons of data, there's very little viewpoint diversity on college campuses, but it's become very difficult, near impossible to refute kind of anything that sounds in the uh, register of, you know, in the race or ethnicity register. I mean, this story is incredible to me, won't be incredible to you. I attended a kind of de facto mandatory DEI training at John Jay, and they presented some data on police shootings. And um, one of my colleagues raised a legitimate question about the data. So the data on police shootings and race is actually very complicated because the presence of a weapon is such a predictive factor that it kind of crowds out race as an explanatory variable. That's not to say that criminal justice system isn't like riddled with racism in lots of ways. The shooting data is kind of more complicated. I'm not personally an expert in this, but I've heard colleagues present about it enough and I've read enough about it that I thought her position was a legitimate viewpoint. And she's actually a nationally recognized expert on policing. And they said, we're not here to debate the data. Your job is to listen to the data. And that's at a, a college of social scientists dedicated to the study of criminal justice. Almost every one of my colleagues, including myself, is liberal, right? Nobody was actually even challenging the fundamental premise, just saying like, this needs some nuanced understanding. And the conversation just shut down. And um, it's terrible. I think it's so hard for people who haven't been in an academic environment to understand from the outside looking in how such sometimes unhinged, like totally unchecked ideas are allowed to proliferate without anyone sticking their hand up and saying like, I disagree. But like the culture of conformity is frightening. And I think sometimes it inculcates these really extreme ideas without ever being checked. And an example of it, of this that I saw recently, which I think relates to our conversation as a whole was um, Harvard 
as a result of the Supreme Court ruling, there's a clause in the in the ruling or the majority opinion that says like nothing prevents schools from asking about race or or students from writing about their race and and application essays. And so a lot of colleges are going right up against the line of legality and, and asking about cultural context, et cetera. And what Harvard did was change their admissions essay requirements from one optional longer supplemental essay that was like 500 to 600 words to five shorter 200 word essays. And the Harvard Crimson editorial board had a majority opinion article basically saying that the word limits were or strongly implying that the word limits were racist and were going to disproportionately impact underprivileged students because they couldn't possibly be expected to write succinctly. Um, and also took issue with the fact that one of the questions asked about an, a formative intellectual experience. And they said that that disproportionately will um, benefit students from privileged backgrounds who have the privilege of having intellectual experiences. So essentially, you have kids at Harvard from, I mean, we've just gone through the statistics of how overwhelmingly privileged the edit- members of the editorial board almost certainly are, who are saying People with less money applying to Harvard to be students at Harvard could not possibly have the same diversity of intellectual experiences or the ability to write with any sort of word limit. And that was the majority opinion of the Harvard Crimson editorial board. And I wonder truly to myself, is that really the majority or is that the sort of thing where somebody comes in and they say, this is like someone very, like very woke and very activisty, and this is their viewpoint. And who at that table is going to raise their hand and say, well, actually, like, is it really or push back on that? I mean, it's just that sort of stuff is so shocking and tone deaf. And I think that lack of actual meaningful diversity feeds right into it. I saw your article about that. I think I've been on this from before the court issued its decision. And I was like, well, you're now going to have a proliferation of essays about people's experience of racism as opposed to their race, right? But if it's about my experience of disadvantage, I mean, everybody experiences that in, in, right, in their life. And so it's such a kind of damaging inquiry, I think, for to invite even the rich white student to search their life for the way that they've been disadvantaged, as opposed to asking the person to account for the advantages that they've had. I think that's what really would, that would be a much more instructive exercise But I do think in its totality, somehow rich people are going to benefit from this change because if it now becomes a game where I have to sort of articulate my experience of disadvantage without saying too much that actually signals what my race actually is, mm, I think it's the person who works with a college counselor that's going to have the advantage in that. You know, there's such a simple fix to this is let people sit in a room when they take their SAT or ACT or go somewhere else and write their essay while they're sitting there instead of sending it off to somebody for $500 an hour to be polished. You know, I, I, I just say one other thing, if I may. I so appreciate the spirit of uh, your work in the podcast. I mean, I've spent my fair amount of time of my own. I, I, I did a long piece where I, like post-2016, I was like, trying to understand what goes wrong, what's gone wrong in America. I actually sought out to teach. I te- I've taught an ethics course forever. I love, love doing it. It's all the most controversial things. I've never had somebody say something racist. I've had plenty of people say controversial things, but I've never had somebody say something hateful. I've never had people start to scream at each other. 
the opposite of what you see on social media. And so I went, you know, and I'm super left-leaning. And I went and taught my class. It wasn't as right-leaning as I really would have liked. I really would have liked to have gone to like Liberty University or something like that. But I went to Appalachian State University. I had the same experience I have everywhere else. When people talk face-to-face, they're generally respectful. There's lots of commonality. I'm sure you and I have some policy differences, but we'd probably agree on 95% of stuff and we'd find a civil way to resolve the things we disagreed about. And I think one thing that has really, really gone wrong in America and that Trump really exploited, and in my book I say, and it's true that it's a page he took out of Adolf Hitler's playbook, is mistrust of elites. But Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford as the gatekeepers to the elite have fomented this mistrust by closing their gates to anyone who isn't super wealthy. And that is really at the root of what's tearing America apart. We don't really have a clash of values in America. We have a clash of facts. We have a clash of kind of scientific process, right? And I don't think that elite colleges with their hundreds of billions of dollars of endowment have taken seriously their obligation to promote access, not just because it's in the institution's benefit, but democracy depends on having elite that is not just one type of person. And so in your ideal world, what sort of reforms and fixes can be made? Obviously, we agree pretty passionately on the legacy admissions front, but would you prefer these elite institutions to to do socioeconomic affirmative action or like how how can they tip the balance back towards um, fostering more trust? There's a lot of low-hanging fruit that they could do that would have huge impacts. So obviously they should eliminate the grossly unethical, indefensible practices, right? Legacy preference. I've never heard anybody articulate a cogent defense. Harvard just says, oh, we're just going to keep doing it. And we're going to do it a little less, which is different than saying it's it's ethical. So those should be reduced, but they could easily increase class size. So none of these places have done this. And, you know, I'm talking about a special obligation for, you know, Malcolm Gladwell called Princeton a perpetual motion machine, right? They, they're earning enough on their endowment to cover the entire cost of running the college. So now you're in sort of a different universe. You're a universe without constraints. And what would that look like? So, well, there's only two things you're going to do. You're either going to kind of diminish the influence of these elites or you're going to increase access to it. So I don't think it's realistic to ask them to diminish the value of their brand, but they could, you know, expand their freshman class size by 50%, really try to significantly broaden socioeconomic access. A simple way to do that is to just take top, you know, the val- they took the valedictorians, they just did a lottery among valedictorians in the United States. They'd get a magnificently diverse class. It would be geographically diverse. It would be racially and socioeconomically diverse. And the data says very strongly that they do better in college, that, that GPA is actually a better predictor of success than SATs. So, you know, that's where I'd start. I mean, I, I, there's tons more you could do beyond that, but that would be doing a ton of good. And what is your... Um your opinion on this recent kind of push against standardized testing as a whole? Because I I definitely see both sides of this argument where, yes, SAT tutoring helps. And yes, like having the luxury of time to go through test books 
for hours and hours or going to a school that builds that into the day certainly can up your score. But on the flip side, if we remove the standardized tests, um, like I think there's a way to kind of contextualize a standardized test based on where someone comes from. But if you remove it with the grade inflation that we have right now, especially in the high school education system, what metric is left to actually objectively quantify an applicant's quality? Well, I actually think it's even worse than that. So when these these schools, they don't really reduce the reliance on standardized tests. They just have changed a rhetoric around, rhetoric around it. So if we say test optional, that's totally different than saying we will not take tests from anybody. So how much do you want to bet that affluent white applicants continue to submit their SAT or ACT scores? Because if you go back, if you've ever read um, Paul Tuff's book, which is it's retitled The Inequality Machine, what the SAT principally functions to do is to give affluent applicants a way of outperforming their GPA, right? So when you look at who does better on the SAT, who runs ahead on the SAT of their GPA, it's overwhelmingly affluent white people. So they're not taking that away. They're just changing the story about it. And, you know, from my standpoint, I advise a lot of kids who go on to law school and basically law school only cares about your LSAT score. Is that perfectly equitable? No. But it's a lot better than saying, okay, well, two thirds of the slots at Harvard Law School are going to be reserved for mommy or daddy went to Harvard Law School, or you're on the Harvard Law School squash or lacrosse team, or um, your mommy or daddy gave you know $5 million or more to the law school. It doesn't operate that way. So it's a less unjust game than what it is getting into college. You just have to try to do the best you can on the LSAT. And I'm always like, you know, it's not perfect justice, but it's not gross injustice. And I think like it's kind of what MIT does. MIT is very clearly to me the best of the worst. MIT could do more, but they don't do any legacy preference. Sports aren't as big a part of their game. I think they get a lot more stuff right than these other colleges do. And they have an endowment of over $25 billion and obviously a very, very a sterling reputation. So it hasn't damaged them at all. Yeah, I mean, and at least there have been a few colleges here and there that have been dropping the legacy requirements. But one last thing I want to ask you about, because someone just put this on my radar. I'm, I'm sure by the time the art or this episode drops, my article will be out about it. Um, but shout out to Brian Taylor at Ivy Coach for telling me this exists. Are you familiar with the Z list at Harvard? Yeah. I So I wasn't, and I'll just explain it for listeners. But essentially, it's it's even worse than there's all these legacy admits coming in in freshman year because Harvard has figured out a way to basically send an acceptance letter to a kid who has lower SAT scores and or lo- a lower GPA and would bring down their ranking, um, but who happens to have some sort of special connection to the school, whether they're a legacy or the child of an influential person. And they go and take a year off, right? Yeah. They, so they send they send an acceptance letter and they say, come in a year, co- go and take a gap year. And the way that the school benefits from that is that they don't have to report when they report their matriculating income freshman class to the U.S. News and World Report or to whatever other data database. They don't have to report these kids. So it's a way to bring these privileged kids who would otherwise tank their, their metrics on all fronts in through the back door. And I, this guy that I spoke to who, um, yeah, I'll make sure that this doesn't drop before I publish the article, but, um, this guy that I spoke to, Brian Taylor at Ivy coach is, you know, he's running this Manhattan elite 
consulting firm for kids applying to college. And he was like, yeah, I, we can see from a mile away who might be a Z-list applicant. And we're pretty good at predicting which ones of our kids are going to have the connections to pull that off, which is just shocking to me. I, I'm curious if you think that that has gotten enough attention, that that's even a thing. It's appalling. I mean, you know, it's been reported on. I was going to say one other thing, Ricky, which is that like, look, these colleges are private actors. And if they really were purely private actors, you know, they can do whatever they want. But these private actors collectively receive about $20 billion a year in tax breaks. So people don't really think about this, but you give money to your college, that's tax deductible. Their earnings on that is tax deductible. They're exempt from real estate taxes in most places. They're exempt from state taxes in almost every state. They're given extraordinary preferential treatment like the church or a charity. And if they're going to operate like a charity, well, then they should be charitable. And there's two charitable definitions I can imagine. One, they led in a meaningfully diverse set of people, which is socioeconomically and racially diverse, not just, oh, we're going to let in a handful of rich people of color, right? Or they're promoting people into do-gooder careers. And of course, it's the opposite of that. 60% of Harvard students go into management consulting, investment banking, or the tech sector. So my joke is, this is, we have an apartheid system in a joke. It's not really, it's a sad joke. We have an apartheid system in America. I teach at a college of the poor that if you live in New York and you see a a police officer or a firefighter or your kid's kindergarten teacher, chances are better than not that they went to CUNY. So we run a college of the poor that funds our public servants. So we all pay lip service to saying they do the most important jobs in society. And then we run colleges of the rich, which produce our management consultants and investment bankers. And there's no reason the taxpayers of America should invest in that. So either they should admit a ton more people who are Pell Grant eligible or whatever, or they should stop people. They should really actively combat career funneling, or we should stop subsidizing them. And I'd love to also hear your take on, I mean, I think I'm one of a growing number of kids who is dropping out of elite higher education in general, just because there's a growing distaste for it. I mean, obviously, I think there are plenty of different reasons why why people are choosing to forego higher education. And it's not something that I I want to burn the system down. I just wish that it was better. And I and and participating in it and spending money on it just doesn't feel in line with my values personally. And there, I mean, there's one million fewer college students today than there were pre-pandemic. If you look at the statistics of even high school students at the moment, um, something like 63% say that they want to forge their own educational path. And like half of them say that they, they don't think that they need a college degree to succeed. And I'm not anti-higher ed. Like that is not at all my stance whatsoever. I'm just anti it being a de facto requirement in education. And I think that a or in, in society to get any sort of class mobility. And, and I think a genuine course correction and and market correction on these institutions who've just been pumped full of taxpayer backed um, or federally backed student loans and and have been able to raise tuition with with no regard for the long-term impacts on on the people who take out loans like I'd be I'm curious to hear your take on on whether we're headed towards a more healthy understanding of higher education as a society or whether that's not I mean that's frankly there's Harvard has the most selective class of all time this year too. So it's not to say that the top institutions are really feeling the heat, but do you think that we're like with this mistrust of higher ed, is it putting some market pressure for 
higher education as a whole to get better? I don't think uh, elite colleges feel any market pressure. You know, their business is doing very well and they're Harvard's on track to have a trillion dollar endowment by around 2100. So they probably don't. I mean, I think other colleges, you know, the mortals of colleges um, do. I mean, there's a lot to say about this. There's actually some very interesting data in that same tranche of uh, Chetty Friedman data that we mentioned earlier about whether college is a good economic bet. Um, so people not only pay tuition, people forget that there's the opportunity cost of not working those four years. So if you do go to one of these colleges, you know, these elite colleges, $80,000 a year, you know, plus the thirty or $40,000 a year you could have made even if you were working in fast food or whatever. So that's $480,000 or so, you know, half million dollars or so that you're going to have to make up. And then what happens once you're not at one of those, you know, super elite colleges, you're just at kind of, you know, the hundredth ranked college or something like that. Well, in that range, it's very hard to recoup that investment. People who go into STEM careers um, end up doing pretty well. Of course, the greatest disaster is that you borrow all that money and you don't finish, which happens to the majority of people who start college in the United States. I mean, there's a ton of questions that I don't think we've really collectively thought about. I, I do think college serves a very, very important civic function. Maybe it used to. I mean, I think it still does. I mean, people come out of college with much better kind of attitudes in terms of, you know, um, tolerating, uh, embracing dissent or embracing people with whom they have differences. You are an unusual case. You were at an elite college and chose to forego that. I do think in your story, not that it, I know, you know, you've told me some of it. I think what's tragic about that and I, is, I don't even know how you describe your own ideology, but whatever, you're, you're obviously a super intelligent person. There has to be a place for you in college. It can't be that, um, what was the book you had? Thomas Sowell, is that who you had that you had? A, Thomas had Sowell your... and Jordan Peterson books, Under My Bed. Yeah, you, you shouldn't have to feel shame for, you shouldn't feel shame for reading anything. I would have been delighted to have had you in my class. And um, there's nothing more fun than having a smart person in class who's, you know, a good sparring partner and wants to think about things. And you seem like you have an open mind about things. So what could be better? So it's tragic that college failed you in that regard. Um, but I, I, I can see where you're coming from. I don't listen to your story and think that's crazy. That's an idiosyncratic reaction. I, I, I don't know why that you would go to an you know, an institution like NYU and think that it was really a place for you. But life's a long game. You'll see how you think about it over the course of your life. <laughs> well, people like you give me give me hope that there's a, a course correction, and at least in terms of strength and numbers of, you know, I don't think you and I agree on quite a lot of political things. If, um, however, like we agree on core principle values. And I, I think that there's strengthen numbers of more people, like actually being able to have vulnerable conversations and put their viewpoint out there and not attach ad hominem attacks to dialogue and discourse. And and the more that that's modeled in higher ed, the the better I think it will become in the long term. But you, um, do a, you do a wonderful job in the book of itemizing and explaining the different types of kind of rhetorical, what you call them rhetorical fortresses, but the, the things people do in conversation that really stifle mutual understanding. And I, I think for the most part, people miss an opportunity. You know, it's very rare 
I guess if you and I were the deciding votes on the Senate floor for something, like it might make sense to go to the mat about it. But, you know, for the most part, it's just a much more interesting way to move through life and just be interested in how people came to believe the things that they believe. And I think we probably agree on more than you might think. You get along with Greg, and I agree with Greg on a lot of things. So I'm sure that you and I would get along very well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. And everyone should order a copy of Poison Ivy, which is a great title, by the way. And where can listeners find you and follow your work? I'm on Twitter at, at Evan Mandry. My website is www.evanmandry.com, but you could also, I'm easy to find and you could shoot me an email. And um, my next big piece is about you and Greg. So uh, I hope you'll read it with interest. And I, I hope you'll. Uh, um, civil libertarianism in America is really under very dire threat from both the left and the right. And it's something that everybody needs to take seriously because um, that is the core of the American project. I couldn't agree more. And thanks to everyone for listening. Um, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. And we will be back with another episode shortly. Mm-hmm.